Our reading today is going to be from Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16. I'll give you a moment to turn to it if you would like. Listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law... No one will be justified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, even as we prepare to approach your word, we come asking that you would reveal yourself to us this morning that we would be made keenly aware of your grace and of your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would deal with us corporately, but that you would also be so kind to deal with us individually this morning, that you would deal with us however we come this morning, with our doubts and with our skepticism, with our fears and our bitterness, with our hope, with our comfort. Father, however we come this morning, we pray that You would deal with us. And in dealing with us, that You would remind us that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But You are so good to send Jesus for us, because in Him we have the hope that not only are we far more broken than we can imagine, but that we are far more loved and far more secure far more approved of and accepted in Jesus than we could ever dare dream. So, Father, we pray that you would take us to this good news this very morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Children ages 3 to 1st grade are dismissed now to Children's Church. So, if you make your way to the back, you'll be taken to your class. I just saw somebody take a spill back there. It'll be all right. Um, we, uh, we recently started a series on Paul's letter to the Galatians, and this morning we're going to try to open up these verses in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But before we get to these verses, and before we get there, I, I really need you to do some careful thinking with me about this letter, because one of the most obvious things about this letter of Paul's to the Galatians is very often the easiest thing for us to miss. And if you miss this, 
you will wind up with a very distorted view of Christianity. And I'm sure many of you have heard some version of that ancient Indian proverb about the blind men who encountered the elephant. Upon encountering this elephant, they reached out their hands to feel the different parts of the elephant, and each of them just tried to describe the elephant. And so one guy reaches up and he feels the belly of the elephant and he says, you know, the, the elephant is very clearly like a wall. And then the next guy comes up with his hands and he's grabbed a hold of one of the elephant's legs and he says, no, n- not at all. The elephant is much more like a tree. And another guy grabs the trunk and he says, no, y'all have missed it all together. He probably didn't say y'all in the ancient Indian proverb. But... Um, <laughs> But he says, no, the elephant, it's very much like a giant snake, right? And, uh, and you get the point. We go on for a while. But um, the view of the elephant, right, was distorted um, because they couldn't see how these individual parts that they were feeling fit with the whole and related to the whole. Now, stay with me for just a couple more minutes here. It's easy in Galatians to get so very close to the individual parts that you miss the most obvious thing about this letter. And here it is. Paul was writing to Christians, and immediately that feels anticlimactic to you. Um, It doesn't feel like that big of a deal to you. But, But listen, Paul, in this letter, is explaining the gospel to Christians. And this is actually a dramatic paradigm shift for us, right? A paradigm shift is when your fundamental view of something has changed, right? To understand what an what an elephant actually is, right? It changes your view entirely. It's an, an elephant's nothing like a wall or a snake or a tree, right? Paul is saying that the gospel isn't just the way you become a Christian. I mean, it is that. But he's saying the gospel is also about how you live the Christian life. See, most of us think that the gospel is the ABCs. It's the elementary stuff. It's the basics. It's how you get into God's kingdom. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The gospel is the advanced stuff. It isn't the ABCs of the Christian life, but it is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is everything, and that's a dramatic paradigm shift for us. And it becomes very clear in this passage because Paul here is explaining how the gospel operates in the life of a Christian. And if I failed to impress you with how important this actually is, let me try to be very practical just for a moment. All of your fears and all of your bitterness in your life your lack of joy, your insecurity in this life, your inability in your life to overcome certain sins in your life and the patterns of brokenness in your life, and you're failing to live freely in the gospel, it can all be traced back to missing this. Paul is giving us a whole new way of seeing all of life through the lens of the gospel. And to the degree that you get that, you will find real freedom and deep and abiding joy and the power through the gospel to change and actually make real progress in the Christian life. And Paul is saying the way that you do that, that happens when you understand how the gospel operates in your life. So let's think about how the gospel operates this morning with these three points. The gospel, Paul says, has a trajectory. And the gospel has a shovel 
And the gospel has an answer. And those are obscure, but hopefully they'll become clear as we go. First, the gospel has a trajectory. The key verse in this passage that Steve read for us earlier is verse 14, where Paul wrote that he saw that their conduct was not in line with the truth of the gospel. And that's one take on an English translation. Uh, Another take is the New International Version, uh, which says, or as it, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what we read this morning. But the New International Version is the one that translated, translates it that they're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And the Greek word that everybody's trying to translate here is orthopedeo. And you might already see it, right? Ortho means straight, as in a straight line. And pudeo is the word for feet or for walking. Now listen, because if you miss this, you're going to miss everything. Paul is saying that the gospel has a particular trajectory. It has a line. He's saying the Christian life isn't primarily a matter of rules and following certain laws, but it's the Christian life is lived by getting in line with the truth of the gospel. So here's the scene. It's getting in line with the gospel trajectory. Here's the scene in this passage. Peter or Cephas, he came to Antioch, and while he was there, he enjoyed this fellowship with the Gentiles because he knew the truth of the gospel, right? These Gentiles, they had the perfect love and acceptance of God through Jesus and through Jesus alone. There wasn't one little rule. There wasn't one little thing left for them to do. Not one little extra thing in addition to Jesus that gave them confidence that they were absolutely and perfectly loved and accepted completely by God. Not circumcision, not keeping any of the Jewish clean laws, uh, such as eating only certain foods. Right, So Peter, he was right there with them. He was eating with the Gentiles. They were eating a pulled pork sandwich or something like that. Um, But then these men came from James. And we've said this in previous weeks, that they were saying something like this. Paul was right that you need to believe in Jesus, but he watered down the gospel for you. Right? Jesus is necessary, but if you really want to be assured that God loves you and accepts you and sees you as beautiful, then you need to keep these other rules too. And when they came... We're told in verse 12 that Peter and the others, even Barnabas, Paul wrote, got up and they changed tables. Right? They didn't want to be seen with those dirty, uncircumcised, unclean eating Gentiles who weren't living up to code. Right? Look, you and I know exactly what's happening here. This is racism is what it is. Right, Peter and the others were saying, our culture, our race is superior to yours. We're better than you because of how we live. So here's the big question. How did Paul confront Peter's sin and the racism that was spreading through the church on this day? He didn't say, Peter, you are so rude. You know, what bad manners you have. He didn't say to Peter, shame on you. You're breaking the no racism law. And certainly, 
If, Peter wanted, if Paul wanted to, he could have gone back to the Old Testament and he could have quoted numerous passages of, of Scripture where God clearly condemned racism. But instead, this is what he did. He pointed Peter and the others to the gospel trajectory. He said, the gospel has a line. It creates a trajectory for your life. He was saying, Peter, your life has gotten out of step. It's not in line with the truth of the gospel, with the trajectory of the gospel. Do you understand how absolutely profound that is? Listen, my dad was in the military, grew up as a military brat. He was in the Air Force, and he spent his career in the Air Force dealing with missiles. That was his area of expertise, and in particular, launching satellites into space. And when he was the wing commander of our nation's main satellite base in Colorado Springs, he took me, he, he took me to work with him one day. And he walked me through the halls, and we had to punch all these codes to get through different uh, doorways, and we would swing open these two feet thick steel vault-like doors, and it was really, really cool. Um, And as we made our way through his office, through that building, to the inner sanctum, right, beyond one of those big, thick doors, he pointed out this room um, that was completely sealed off from everything else. And Inside that room was just a wall, it was wall-to-wall computers and blinking lights. And he said, all those computers, all those computers are dedicated to keeping this one clock that we have in perfect time. And he went on to explain why that clock was so important. Because when you're launching satellites thousands and thousands of miles into space, you have to make all these very, very precise calculations so that the missile will follow a very precise trajectory and wind up in the orbit you need it to be in. And if you miss that line, if you miss that trajectory, it might not appear to be a big deal at first. Right? But in reality, that missile will be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles off target and miss its orbit completely. If you miss what Paul is doing here, you are going to miss the good news of the gospel by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Do you see how absolutely profound this? He didn't say to Peter, I want to show you how terrible you are. He didn't say to Peter, I I want to show you how you've broken all these laws. What he did was he said, Peter, I want you to remember how unbelievably good God is. He didn't use fear. He didn't use guilt. He didn't use shame to correct Peter. And immediately you ought to recognize that is very different from the way you normally live your life. Because you look at porn on the computer, or you lose your temper with your spouse or with your children, or you manipulate your boss by gossiping about your coworker, and the moment you recognize it, you start telling yourself how terrible you are, how ashamed you should be, and you use shame and guilt and fear to motivate yourself to change. But Paul says the real problem in your life is that you've forgotten how much God loves you. You've forgotten how incredibly good God is. 
That He has reconciled you to Himself through Jesus and Jesus alone. You aren't living in line with the truth of the gospel, Paul says. You're in the wrong orbit. You're out of step with the gospel trajectory. And we've got to keep going, but can't, I hope you can already get a taste for how different an approach, of, uh, an approach to life this is. Verse 12 tells us plainly that Peter and the others, they changed tables because of fear. And to correct them, Paul didn't just use more fear. He told them about the love of Jesus for them. Now, second, the gospel has a shovel. What in the world does that mean? Um, Hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to explain it. I want you to think about this. When Paul says the gospel has a trajectory and your life is meant to be lived in line with that trajectory, he's also at the same time showing you how the gospel gets beneath the surface of your life. If all you see in life are the rules and the laws that you need to follow, you will only be dealing with the superficial stuff of your life. And as a result, you will never experience the deep change God intends you to experience. And you won't find the freedom to overcome sin in your life. If Paul had simply said to Peter and the others, follow the no racism law, right? Their behavior might have changed. But the roots of that sin, that arrogance and that superiority, it would never have been dealt with. That sin would have found another way to express itself. This gospel trajectory takes you deeper Right, The gospel has a shovel that digs deep into your heart to expose and to heal the roots of your sin. When my family lived in Mississippi at this little house, and in this little house, we started having these plumbing problems. And they started at one end of our house and started working their way down the house, right? And first, we noticed that our washing machine started backing up with water. And then next, it was the sink in our kitchen that started backing up with water. And then moving down the hall, it was the bathtub uh, in our hallway bathroom that started backing up with water. And, you know, initially... I spent a lot of money on Drano, um, and, but it never fixed the problem. And so finally I called the plumber, and he broke the news to me. He, he said the problem wasn't with the washing machine, the sink, or the bathtub. The main plumbing line that was underneath the house had flattened, and therefore the water couldn't drain off properly, and it kept backing up. And so I, you know, I told him, um, well, do what you have to do, because we can't live like this. Um, and so... The next day, he showed up to my house with a tractor and a bunch of men with shovels. And they tore through my little back, backyard concrete patio that I loved and ripped it all up and dug and got underneath my house to fix that plumbing line, um, right? He had to get underneath, right? And then, at, you know, at the end of it, he handed me this bill, and I thought, gosh, I have really chosen the wrong career path, um, But listen, the stuff on the surface, right, the washing machine, the sink, the bathtub, right, those were just symptoms of a much deeper issue, and there was no way to get to that deeper issue but with shovels. My backyard had to get torn up, and what you and I need is for the gospel to come into our lives like a shovel and start tearing up our backyard and to dig deep into our hearts and get at the root of all our problems 
all our issues, and all our sin. Can you see how Paul, in this passage, is using the gospel like a shovel in Peter's life? It's there at the end of verse 14 and then verses 15 and 16. Paul was saying basically this to Peter and the others. He was saying to them, God did not have fellowship with you. He did not enter into a relationship with you on the basis of your culture, on the basis of your race, on the basis of your performance. He was saying, he brought you in to complete and perfect fellowship with him, completely on the basis of Jesus' work. So how dare you turn around and have fellowship with others on the basis of race, culture, or performance? Do you you see this gospel shovel doing its work? What was the gospel unearthing? Here, right? What was it exposing beneath the surface in Peter's life? It was exposing a suspicion that Jesus alone wasn't enough to make me beautiful, to gain approval for me, right? To know that I'm accepted. My obedience, my performance, my race, my culture is what really makes me beautiful in God's eyes. If you go and you study every experience of racism, from Hitler's Nazi regime to the genocide in Rwanda to our own country's struggles with racism. Underneath it, what you are going to find is a deep insecurity to gain approval, acceptance, and beauty. It's so appropriate that we're talking about this passage not one, one week removed from Martin Luther King Day. You know, every year when it, when it comes to Martin Luther King Jr.'s Day, I try to go back and reread his letter from a Birmingham jail. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Brilliant. And near the beginning of that letter, he wrote to Christian pastors and clergymen this, I am sure that each one of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. And he goes on to explain those underlying causes. Please see here how Paul uses the gospel like a shovel to dig beneath and to unearth underlying causes to bring about real change. Paul was dealing with the sin of racism and favoritism and partiality, and he was going after its roots with a gospel shovel. But the principle here, the principle here, addresses every problem in your life, every sin and every issue of your life, not just racism. Maybe it's sexual sin and addiction like we brought up a moment ago that has you in its grips, or maybe it's your workaholism, or maybe it's your anger and your bitterness that you can't seem to overcome. Please hear me clearly. You will never overcome it. Right? You won't even understand its temptation in your life until you begin to use the gospel like a shovel. Because the sex and the workaholism and the anger, those are just symptoms that are bubbling to the surface of your life. You run to sex because you need someone's adoration to make you feel beautiful. Or you need to feel power in order to control and attract someone in order that you would feel valuable in life. You're a slave to achieving and accomplishing in your career and climbing the ladder because you need it to feel valuable. You need it to feel significant because Jesus isn't enough in your life to tell you your worth and your significance. 
You struggle with anger, and you struggle with bitterness in your life, right? Because someone or some circumstances themselves, they've come into your life, and they've kept you from getting the thing that you think you need to make you whole and complete and fulfilled. Jesus wasn't enough. The gospel is not the elementary stuff. It is the advanced stuff. You will only really change to the degree that you get the gospel down into the deep and dark places of your heart that it hasn't yet penetrated. You need the gospel shovel to expose these roots of your brokenness and also heal those very same roots with the good news. One more thing, and then we'll be on to the last point. It's very easy that you, some of you would hear all of this and then you would immediately start falling back into shame and fear and guilt in your life. Because I did it this past week, right? As I'm looking at this passage, because I see in my life that there are so many places that I have failed to take the gospel to, right? What I really wanted was a gospel rake, not a gospel shovel, right? A rake is not painful, It just kind of combs over the surface. But a shovel breaking through hard ground, that's painful. And so in our lives, we avoid it, right? We keep the gospel at a safe distance from those deep, dark places of our lives. And I'm trying to encourage you this morning, don't fall back into shame, guilt, and fear when you hear this. You need to take some hope from this passage. Peter an apostle who Jesus absolutely loved. And as Paul wrote, even Barnabas, right? Barnabas, who was with Paul and on the front lines of taking the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, they both failed. They all failed. They both had to struggle to get in line with the gospel and work out its implications. They had to get it deep into their lives. And if they had that struggle, then why would you be any different? Right, Martin Luther, the theologian who was Martin Luther King's namesake, he, he wrote about these verses. He wrote, No one has fallen so badly that he cannot rise again. And on the other hand, no one is so sure-footed that he cannot fail. If Peter fell, I may fall. But if he rose again, I may rise again. And I want to encourage you to rise with Peter. Not through shame, or guilt, or fear, but through the good news of the gospel, that there is nothing you can add to Jesus to improve upon how much God loves you at this very moment. You never can add anything to that. And you need to take that good news deep into your heart and let it melt the hardness that is there. All right, third and finally, the gospel has an answer. An answer to what? Um, To use the language of Uh, Paul in verses 15 through 16, which we'll discuss more next week, the gospel has an answer to the deep and desperate cry of your heart for righteousness, for something that will justify your life. And you need not get thrown by those very religious-sounding words here, right? All of humanity, as a cultural anthropologist, Ernest Becker, he wrote in his book, The Denial of Death, Right? All of humanity is involved in some kind of salvation strategy. I mean, he most definitely wasn't a Christian. But he looked at all of humanity, right? And he saw that all humanity, religious or irreligious, 
is in pursuit of some kind of salvation strategy in their life, grasping for some form of righteousness that will justify our lives, that will make us beautiful, that will make us significant and valuable and worthy and lovable. And Paul is saying that every salvation strategy can really be boiled down to one of two contrasting views of life. You will either freely receive righteousness through Jesus alone, a free gift that you can never improve upon by your performance, but also that can never be lost through your failure. A full and perfect beauty that covers you completely and entirely, or you're going to have to work for it and strive for it and strive to measure up to that standard. And it doesn't matter if you work for it religiously or irreligiously. You can be trying to find it in your career or in the creativity of your art or in you being a successful parent or in you gaining the love of your spouse or in your morality. And if you do, if you look for it in those ways, working for it and striving for it, you will be feeding the twin sisters of arrogance and deep insecurity in your life. Because on the one hand, you'll look at your achievements, or you'll look at your successes, or you'll look at your art, or you'll look at your parenting, and you'll be working to convince yourself that you have value and worth and significance because you aren't like those other people who don't measure up like this. And and, and listen, you have to watch out if that's you. Because the moment you fail morally, right, the moment your artistic creativity dries up, or you fail your children, or your spouse betrays you, the superiority in your life will turn into a howling insecurity as you've lost all sense of self. The deep insecurity underneath all of your striving is going to be exposed. And you contrast that with receiving righteousness through Jesus alone? Because if the good news of the gospel gets worked deep into your heart, and you begin to see the trajectory that it creates for your life— It will also nurse twin sisters, but those twin sisters will be radical humility and bold confidence. Why? Because the gospel on the one hand comes to you and it says, yes, your sin is both real and profound, right? Nothing less than the death of the Son of God could rescue you and save you, and that should create in you a radical humility. But at the very same time, it says this, yes, but he loved you so completely, so fully, so perfectly, so thoroughly that he was willing and he was glad to die for you. He gives you freely the righteousness you hunger for, and that creates in you bold confidence. I'm almost done here. But Peter, the others, even Barnabas, Paul writes, caved into the pressure on this day that Paul is describing for us. But Paul, he was able to stand up for the truth of the gospel. He had a resource of incredible confidence that gave him the confidence to speak the truth to those in power, right? But he never had to stoop to using fear, guilt, or shame to do that because he was able to speak the truth with love and grace and humility. How is that possible that Paul could be both of those things? It's because in the gospel he had found an answer, an answer to his heart's cry for righteousness. Because the gospel had been worked so deeply into his heart, and because he saw the gospel trajectory for his life, 
and the beauty of the gospel was powerful to change him. Rainier Rilke, he was an Austrian poet in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And one day he went to a museum, and he sat all day in front of a Greek statue of Apollo. And after sitting for an entire day, just absolutely captivated by the beauty of the artistry, right? And and just the unbelievable (laughs) gloriousness of this statue. He wrote the poem that's on the front of your bulletin in his journal. And the title of that poem is Apollo's uh, Archaic Torso. But listen, the version I put in your bulletin, it's a very loose translation because it sounds much more flowy and all that kind of stuff. Um, But it does give you a taste of the beauty that he saw. But the ending, the ending of that poem, where in this version it says, For its searing gaze penetrates your soul the way you live. It's not bad. But the more literal translation of that is far more blunt and to the point. He wrote, For there is no angle from which it cannot see you. And then he ended it like this. You must change your life. See, Rilke was saying that confronted with true beauty, he didn't have a choice. Confronted with real and true beauty, he felt that he had to change his life. He had to change his life. True beauty was calling for a beautiful life. It was pulling him into its trajectory, into its orbit. It was digging deeply into his heart. The gospel isn't the ABCs. It isn't the basic elementary stuff. It is the advanced stuff. To see the true beauty of God himself who would offer himself as a sacrifice for you, that is the beauty that will change you deeply in your life. So what do you do with this? You think deeply about the gospel. right? You meditate on its beauty and you think out its implications to every area of your life. The gospel has lines all throughout your life. Listen, and you begin working this gospel into your heart, and one great way to do that is through our community groups. I mean, that's what we do on Sunday evenings. We get together, and we talk about the beauty of the gospel. We talk about the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, and we seek to apply it to our lives. You need that community. You need to do. You need other people in your life like Paul who can point you back to that beauty. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this letter of Paul's to the Galatians. And, um, and Father, we thank you for the good news. We thank you that in the gospel we not only have an entry point into your kingdom, but that in it we have a whole new way to live. We have a trajectory, we have the good news that digs deeply into our hearts, revealing to us the answer for the deep cry of our hearts to be right and to know that we are valuable, to know that we are significant, to know that we are lovable. And Father, we pray that this good news of the gospel, that it would be the beauty that drives all change in our life, that we would give up the ways of using shame and guilt and fear in our own life and in the lives of others. And then instead, you would reveal to us the beauty of the gospel in order that we would change. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.